Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to You're On Mute, a new podcast series conceived by BBI, the UK's first black business institute, an organization which aims to boost prospects for underprivileged black entrepreneurs by promoting equivalent access to the UK's funding structures and essential business networks. I'm your host, entrepreneur and business mentor, Bianca Miller-Cole. And over the next 12 weeks, myself and my fellow hosts, June Sarpong and Lord Michael Hastings, will be interviewing an incredible lineup of leaders, icons and changemakers to ascertain how they balance the importance of commercial performance versus societal impact. As we all know, with great power comes huge responsibility. And this series looks at how those in positions of influence can use their status as a force for good. Our time together is broken down into three sections with the guests sharing their favorite pieces of music or soundtrack representing a memorable stage of their life. Joining me today is Stephanie Fair, Chairman of the British Fashion Council and Chief Customer Officer of Farfetch to discuss applying disruptive retail strategies to champion diversity and inclusion. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you for having me. Hello, Bianca. So the first thing, the first thing is your track that you have chosen. So you've gone with Disco 2000 Pulp, uh, but also you said Bittersweet Symphony by The Verve. <laughs> so yeah. tell me more. Hard to pick one song, but I guess um, those probably define my uh, university life. Um, and Disco 2000 has a bit of a nostalgic um, sort of undercurrent to it. And I listen to it and it takes me right back to the storm rooms and to, to uni. And, um, you know, you think it's, it was not that long ago. It was actually a good 20 plus years ago. So who's counting anyway <laughs> so most people know of you as the uh, chairman of the british fashion council and uh, chief customer officer of farfetch which obviously is a great achievement but i'm keen to learn a little bit more about the young younger younger stephanie so um from the beginning you um have had you've been a global citizen you describe yourself as a third country kid tell me a little bit more about that I just discovered this term actually not that long ago. It was uh, it was part of the dissertation of a, a graduate student that I uh, I saw during Fashion Week, um, Conde Nast College graduate student, and uh, and it resonated because it, that was exactly me. Um, so she'd also grown up in lots of different countries, like me, speaking multiple languages, and feeling that we're sort of from everywhere, but nowhere in particular. So the answer when someone says, "Oh, where are you from?" or um, is is not an easy one just because it's sort of do you want the short answer or the long answer <laughs> but I think I also feel incredibly lucky because it just means I've had such a varied um, and diverse uh, upbringing have met people and have kept friends from around the world have reconnected with people from around the world so no I, I, I think I think you make your upbringing the best you can and I was certainly very lucky to have such a global one 
And your dad, he was a banker and your mother was a businesswoman. Would you describe them as your early role models? Always, early, mid, late stage, always. Um, absolutely, just really hardworking, adventurous, risk-taking. Um, they they um, sort of took it in turns, I think, um, to 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 manage their uh, their careers so that uh, so that we always had um, good stability at home, which is uh, which is a really good um, uh, role modeling uh, for me. And uh, yeah, just just incredibly um, social as well. So yes, very lucky to have uh, the parents I do. And you lived in a number of different countries, five countries. Is that right? What were they? So in order, born in Mexico, then Panama City, Paris for a stint where my mother decided it would be good to uh, learn French and get French culture and start a whole sort of French part of our, uh, our education. New York for a time, um, Washington, D.C. Uh, that was when my father was actually working for the World Bank. Um, and, uh, and then London with a stint um, going back and forth to Prague. And what were those first three initial months in Paris like? I do have memories of it. I was small. I was, I was five or six, but I do remember being put into uh, kindergarten, primary school. It, we were in the suburbs of Paris, um, didn't speak a word of French. And, uh, and actually the teacher um, called my mother in after a couple of months and said, look, I think, I think you should look into your daughter. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure she's hearing us. Could she, could she be deaf? And it's because I was just absorbing everything, but not responding. And three months later, I started to speak French. And I think small kids do this. They're sponges and they absorb and then it all comes out. But, uh, but that was my way of, of handling a completely uh, foreign environment. Just take it all in and then respond. Okay. So as a child, I guess you were maybe, you know, not so interested in kind of physical and sporting prowess, uh, but you were, you know, defining your gifts in other ways could you expand a little bit on that I mean I loved I loved my ballet and my gym and my sports it's just that I never got picked on the teams because okay. I was so small I was very very short for many many years so it was never the uh, the obvious pick for the uh, for the basketball team or the football team or whatever other team sports but I did um I did uh do ballet I focused on the academics. Um, mm -hmm. I always, I always um, remember my mother saying, look, this will all come back full circle. Don't worry, focus on what you're really good at. Do something that really differentiates you. Um, and the academics certainly um, helped. And you were so academic that you ended up studying at Oxford University. Um, I can imagine that was a, a contrasting style to uh, education in France. What was that like? very different I mean it was first of all full of English-speaking kids students uh, which I'd not been that used to I had to my first few essays I had to sort of write them in French and then translate them in English wow um, so that added a load to uh to the to the workload um but it was amazing it was such a discovery like all of us who go to university um, it's just such an opening of the minds and uh, and particularly I was quite sheltered so uh, so it was a real eye-opener um, but great and just I think um, the whole the whole way um, Oxford works is through sort of self-learning and 
really thinking through topics. And I think that that helps for, for later, just analytical skills and problem solving. And after university, you found your first job traveling again, and you had plans to go to Panama, but you ended up in New York on a friend's sofa. Is that right? Plans to go to Argentina, actually, but okay. yes, basically traveling. Um, mm. But ended up in New York, and uh, and it was a great stopover, which I never really left and didn't leave for ten years. Um, I found I managed to find a job, someone who was willing to sponsor me uh, for a visa, which I was very grateful for because those, uh, it, it as as everyone knows, it is hard to get visas to work in the U.S. and uh, and someone who was willing to take a chance on me so early on. I I I want to say it was pre nine eleven, so that bit easier to do than mm. after 9-11 when everything tightened up but uh, but it was just such an incredible time to be in New York not just because I was in my 20s but just New York as a city was really thriving and uh, and actually some of the songs I picked were those early 2000s hip-hop that New York was all about when wherever you went out it was about that sort of early hip-hop music and uh, and that just takes me straight back Perfect, because that actually brings us into uh, section two, uh, where we discuss some of the traditional DNI challenges uh, in the company, um, and we, it brings us to our your second track, which you said was Missy Elliott, "Get Your Freak On." <laughs> so tell me a little bit about what that track means for you. I mean, I think you know Missy Elliott has tons of hits, yeah. right? So hard to pick, hard to pick one. But I think. If you listen to it, the early sort of um, those chords, you know what's coming. You know that song's coming. I thought I'd pick her. I mean, there are lots of male rappers and probably um, throughout that time, lots of them came out with hits. But I think being a woman, she particularly stands out. And uh, and I just remember just reading and, and seeing just how well respected she is by all of the others. And she's con she's contributed to music from so many artists. I mean, she, she is an absolute legend. Um, and I happened to go to her birthday party um, in the early 2000s in New York, which was also amazing. And a night I won't forget, it was at Joe's Pub in New York. I can't remember the exact year, but it was really early 2000s. So she's a legend and you, you hear any of her songs. Um, and it also takes me right back. Wow, her birthday party. I, would I bet there's loads of stories about that. Yeah, that was, was fun. That was fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So at this point, you're now working in a PR company founded by a 23-year-old woman, which sounds like a very dynamic environment. Are there any memories of those early assignments? Um, yes, she's called Winnie Beatty and she started a company called Siren PR and I thought she just um, was so, you know, grown up and mature, but we were all so young, but she was entrepreneurial and I think um, that was an inspiration and she got us all to, uh, I always joke, she, she sort of had a fake it till you make it approach, so she had us all answer the phone as our own assistants to, uh, to pretend that our office was way bigger, bigger. than it was. <laughs> Like, uh, yes, let, let me get her for you. <laughs> yes, that was me. Um, but it was great. It was we, we really hustled. And uh, and I just learned so much about business development and sales and comms and just the way the industry works. Um, so I'm very grateful to to um, well, actually to everyone in my career who somehow 
shaped it. And some people are better known than others, like Anna Wintour, and some less known, but equally impactful for me. And she's one of them. So you then landed a key role at Izumiaki, uh, which obviously is quite an iconic brand. What was that experience like? I mean, I think what defines that for me was also all that just the ability and 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 skill set I learned working with entirely different cultures. Um, and if you think about sort of traveling to Japan in the early 2000s, no one had mobile phones. And when you go to Japan, I'd stay in very Japanese uh, hotels. The workforce at Isimiyaki in, in Japan was very Japanese, no foreigners. Um, so just communicating and getting things done and understanding the way the different ways of working and how the meetings and how you should approach getting things done um, was an, a real learning experience um, that I can apply to pretty much anything. We, we, all should, we all should try and put ourselves out of our comfort zone. And that was definitely one for me. Um, and then working with amazing um, people like the architect Frank Gehry, or um, we hosted a musician in the store who at the time was not very well known and he's now a sort of multi-platinum record selling pianist called Leifovne Annes. So just early on that link to culture and fashion and how it all works together um, was fascinating and I was so glad to have that role so young. Did you appreciate the kind of level of gravitas that came with working with you know architectural legends like Frank Gehry at his new flagship store? Or were you kind of just, you know, getting on with it? A bit of both. I know, you know, when you're younger, you just almost get on with it. But I did, I did recognize, I, I did recognize the value of it and, and um, just how lucky I was to be able to, to have these interactions. And it teaches you very quickly a certain level of maturity and, and how to conduct yourself and how to manage these, these relationships. So uh, a good lesson for later on. So your next move took you to Vogue in New York. Yep. What was the energy like at the time? And did you get to meet and work with the great Anna Wintour? I did. I most certainly did. I, I mean, Vogue was was incredible and such a great learning experience. And it is, as you imagine, it was um, it was fast paced. There's no room for error. You sort of everybody there you know I, I often get asked is were you a, were you an assistant well I say everybody was because <laughs> that's just what you did you did what you needed to do whether it was to get the issue out or to put the Met Gala on um, and and there were incredible perks but it was also uh, lots of hard work I think some pretty fabulous moments um, you know my interactions with Andre Leontali were never not fabulous um, and then learning from, from Anna Wintour, I always say I, I learned so much just listening. I sat outside her office, so with one ear I could listen to how she took phone calls, connected people, interacted with people, made decisions, and, uh, and those are good lessons. And, uh, and I would say she's incredibly loyal, and to this day, she has always come through if I've ever asked her for help. I regularly meet up with her, um, and she's supportive in... Um, in everything that I do, whether it's Farfetch or the British Fashion Council. So that loyalty, I do not take for granted. And, uh, and I think it shows so much of who she is. Yeah, that's incredible. So are there any particular lessons that you learned from Andre and from Anna that maybe our listeners could take away that they could implement in their lives? I mean, 
Andre Leontelli is a legend. He's published a number of books. I think for, for him, you know, what's interesting is not having come from the traditional mold of who you might expect would end up in fashion. And he carved his way. And I think he did it through really um, connections and meeting people and having a point of difference and that he has encyclopedic knowledge about um, the fashion industry and references and he links it to culture and art and I think um, you know having that point of difference and having something that you leave people with he was able to carve carve his way and certainly for Andre it was not not easy he grew up um, in a very poor family in the in the south and and found his way through um, and he was never not fabulous so I think there's something about building your brand as well um, in the mix somewhere there um, and then for Man, I think she's she's decisive. She's incredibly hardworking um, and a real connector um, in that best possible sense. It always comes back if you connect someone for funding, if you help a designer find a role, if you um, get together your connect. She she put a group together to launch the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund right after 9/11 to help support designers who um, were not able to show and whose you know, livelihoods were decimated. So I think using her power um, and platform for good is something that I hope um, I can take into the future. I love those three tips. Personal branding is what I'm all about. That's what yeah. I, I teach people on a day-to-day -day basis. So I love that you said personal brand, networking karma, another favorite of mine, and using okay. your power and influence for good. Those are three amazing tips. Yeah, yeah. So you then went on to, I mean, probably by plan or otherwise, technology and fashion started to merge and you started working at Outnet. Tell us a little bit about what the Outnet is for those listeners who may not be aware and your role there. So I had a little stint, Bianca, before the Outnet in, in, in the US at Portero, which was a pre-owned luxury okay. marketplace, the very first, but you're right. I wish I could say it was all by design and I had it all figured out. I did not. And most people who think their career is all figured out, it's only because they've told a good story after the fact, right? Um, I just fell into, more there. <laughs> yeah, I just fell into it. I was keen to sort of move away from editorial and more into the business side and was willing to take really any job that would give me that opportunity. Um, because I didn't want to get pigeonholed into one thing. And the concept of startups was really only just beginning. I'd never heard the term startup. And that's what took me into this business, Portero, which was e-commerce and fashion. It was a marketplace. It was digital. I remember um, doing the first Google AdWords early on. I mean, now it's like a you know, a, a black box of scientific genius, how to manage performance marketing. But back then I was manually typing in the words. So that's what took me into um, Net-A-Porter and the Outnet. I did, I, I did Portero for a few years, um, but it was a business that was too early for its time. It was, uh, imagine 2005 pre-owned luxury goods. It was eBay for luxury. It was Vestiaire Collective and The Real Real and all of these businesses that are now, uh, taking so off big. Yeah. should take off because yeah. um, so important for the fashion ecosystem uh, but back then too early for its time um, but I got to London and and um, was hired by Natalie Massonet and um, the CEO Mark Seba to start and run their second business their outlet business called the Outnet and there there was a brand name there was um, some idea about what the proposition would be but really I was hired to sort of 
uh, bring it all together, really decide our go-to-market strategy, hire a team. I think the first person who was in place was a writer um, called Emily London, which is a perfect, uh, perfect name for who, who we needed, and then hired buyers and um, marketing people, um, all of whom I've stayed in touch with. Um, it was an amazing, amazing uh, team that, that sort of gave birth to this business. And everyone now has gone off to do incredible things, but we're, we're very united in having had that experience. Amazing, really amazing. And I think you're right. Sometimes you just, you know, ahead of your time. <laughs> it happens yeah. in business, right? Timing is and everything too. Yeah, timing is everything. I love that. So as we talk about timing, let's move into section three, a progressive future. Um, and you've chosen a song, Learn to Fly by the Foo Fighters. So tell me a little bit about this song and this project. So it's not it's not a current song, um, which I know is the 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 directive. But I I've been listening to it recently. Just um, my husband actually found it and showed it, and it it's just I mean you cannot watch the YouTube a video and not just have these emotions well up. It's basically the story of this guy who is a huge fan of the Foo Fighters, but they'd never come to play in Italy, and so he decided that he would. I imagine through social media, he would get. Um, like-minded fans all around Italy to come together for one day only and play the song Learn to Fly all together. So they're drummers, bassists, guitarists, singers, um, and they've never met and they all come together in this field and perform this song. And first of all, it's performed to perfection. But second of all, when you realize that people come together for no other purpose than art, and I just think it it, first of all, it's, it's amazing. It's one of those viral YouTube things that just makes you well up. But you also think, God, there's so much more than unites us than separates us. And I just, uh, I, it, it's, it, it's, uh, it's one of those that you think, oh God, there is a lot good about humanity. We all focus so much on the negative, mm. but there's a lot out there. And, uh, and art and music is a good way to bridge a lot of differences. Yeah, perfect, perfect. So coming up to date. Have, have you seen it, Bianca? Have you I have you seen it? But you, you've inspired me to watch it. Yeah, I've not have, seen a, it, have a look. But you, have you a know, look. you're absolutely right in that there is more to humanity than a negative. And sometimes we spend so much time looking at the news and negative, you know, literature and media, and there's so much we can celebrate together. And I think um, this conversation, many of the other conversations we've had on this podcast are illustrative of that that we can all be a great contribution to uh, a fairer world. Um, so yeah, so thank you for that song choice. It didn't have to be modern. I like the fact that it's modern in that you're listening to it now. <laughs> That's, that is yeah. sufficient enough for me. Um, so, so bringing us up to current date, um, you're now at this point working uh, with Farfetch. Could you explain kind of the unique selling point of Farfetch and your role? Yes, um, so I joined Farfetch, it'll be almost five years. I'd of course seen it sort of from the outside start to build up and see the proposition and, and understood it from the outside. But when I joined, I really realized just how incredible the vision was. And really it is to be the platform for luxury through the marketplace, which is buying and selling. Um, so boutiques and brands selling products to a global audience curated luxury fashion, but also as an enabler 
of technology for the luxury business, as we know. Back to the story about uh, Portero 15 years ago, there's so um, much that the luxury industry needs to do to digitize and technology is not easy and it requires very specific investment and skill set. And so partnering with brands to enable them to digitize, whether it's their own e-commerce site or their um, in-store um, tech solutions to bring a kind of interesting digital um, approach to your bricks and mortar, or whether it's how to you know, get into China through all of our um, uh, services and gateway to China. It really is an unbelievable business that kind of takes a 360 degree approach to, to how it can work with the fashion industry. And, uh, and back to the, the, the piece about sort of using your platform for good, given the size of Farfetch and its weight in the industry in terms of what it can do, seeing that it's truly a values-led business was also for me a, a, a huge um, factor in not only joining but staying and enjoying it because it truly is a business that uses its platform for good and uh, and you can see it from the culture inside from how we position things on the outside and uh, and and that's what makes truly valuable businesses I think. Absolutely and uh, I guess with COVID-19 coming along this could have been particularly devastating and at least it was for some brands who had not undergone that kind of digital transformation process. Uh, for some of uh, those brands, how has Farfetch been their savior? You know, I think the business model really came into its own. It, it was always about working with boutiques. In many cases, some of these are family-owned boutiques that have been passed along through generation and generation all around the world and working with brands. And, uh, and for the boutiques in particular, they had not gone through, um, you know, a digital and in some cases didn't need to because they're, they don't need their own website or they don't need. And this is where partnering with Farfetch really helped them. And when COVID came along and their stores quite literally shut and they had zero footfall, Farfetch was able to really support them to continue running their business. We um, we um, created a, a campaign around support boutiques, which I think really resonated with the customer. If you remember, there was such a bigger appreciation of buying from boutiques, buying local, understanding the value that comes from where you get your goods. So I think supporting the boutiques, supporting the brands, they also have stores that shut down. And so our business model is not only set up for the good times, but as it came out, it was very, very well set up for these difficult times. And that's because of our technology, our logistics, the way we work, but also how global we are. We were able to sell into markets that were not under lockdown and restriction. Um, we were able to sell from markets that were, and we were their only lifeline. So that was... Um, from a business standpoint and also just a value standpoint, it was an amazing outcome. And similar to everyone else, when COVID hit, we didn't know how we would manage. It was first a humanitarian and, and health crisis. And the first step was how do we take care of our own people and employees? And when we realized that we had this amazing opportunity, that was incredibly galvanizing for everyone uh, to work towards something for good. Yeah. And on that point of kind of working towards something for good, um, you know, around a similar time, we had obviously the news of the killing of George Floyd. Um, and that, I am sure, kind of inspired some changes uh, in the organization with regards to kind of racial disparity. So 
What were your initial thoughts when that all happened and how did that impact the organization? I think what it what it did is really shine a light on what we were doing and accelerate what we were doing. So, you know, we 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 had programs in place. We um we actually had our, our black employee network um, that had been founded a year or or, or eighteen months before. Um, we had done a huge amount of work around um, gender pay gap and really getting uh, data in order to rebalance. We've done a lot of work around that, but I think what it did is really accelerate and cement the, the fact that we needed to focus on this and formalize a lot of what we were doing and really put resource and attention and really bring it together as, a, as also a galvanizing um, uh, effort for, for all of our employees, because ultimately, um, for farfetchers, being in a values-driven business is important. And if you don't have, um, if you don't work towards social justice, if you don't work in an environment that is feels equitable and fair, um, then you know you can say all you want, but internally, if you're not talking the talk, walking the walk, it doesn't matter. So we truly believe in starting with ourselves first, starting with what we can control. And so we did a number of things. We really invested in our far-fetch people communities. So really um, giving different communities the opportunity to um, raise awareness around their community and how we could really elevate their needs. Um, we worked a lot on um, thinking about how we could, through our supply, represent um, Black designers. And I'm delighted to say that these are designers that we just needed to find and bring on board and uh, and and push. And from a business standpoint, we can we can support. Um, and we've continued with the data gathering. So back to your question, you know, how did this affect us? I think it sadly not the first killing, mm -hmm. um, but it it was a tipping point. I think for for the world to realize that something needed to be done at a more fundamental level. And I think Farfetch believes that, you know, we're a fashion business. We're not, you know, we're not a, we're not a governmental organization. We're not, so we can help where we can help. And in our yes. world, which is around business, around our own employee well-being and equality. And, and that's what we focused on and around um, what we put out to the world, our editorial, our, um, our, our storytelling and so we've really focused on what we can control and I, I, I think we've made real strides on that front. And during this time you became part of a platform called Share the Mic uh, to really discuss some of these issues. What was that like and what were the main points of discussion? So yeah, I, I did this on a completely personal level, but of course everything I do is tied into my work at Farfetch, my work at the British Fashion Council, but uh, a good friend of mine um, in the US, uh, Stacey Bendett from uh, the brand Alice and Olivia had got together and had created Share the Mic uh, in the US. And uh, I was so inspired and we talked about it. And um, in partnership with Vanessa Kingori from uh, British Vogue, we decided to bring it to the UK and say, if this amazing initiative was created in the US, could we do something similar here? And the idea was that really amongst all this talk of social justice and um, how could we create something that certainly had the outcome of giving a platform 
um, and really amplifying and augmenting voices, but talking about something else. So actually the topic of Share the Mic was not specifically around social justice or, or diversity or inclusion. It was actually just really sharing platforms amongst women, accomplished women, white and black women, who wanted to share their audiences, share their platform to talk about the things that matter to them. So whether, um, you know, it was Bernadine Evaristo and her book, whether it was, um, you know, the Chineke Orchestra, whether it was Shannon Hilton, who's an amazing athlete talking about her work. It, it was saying, well, we are so much more than our race. We are women who are business women who have written books who, and how can we augment that? And I think at, at a very um, basic level, if you build bridges through relationships and friendships and show your audience a different audience, these are ways to start to um, move away from that otherness. And so that was the whole thinking behind the Share the Mic and something that I really felt authentically and personally I could get behind because I just love the idea, that idea of sort of personal relationships bridging whatever gap might exist. Um, and I, I have to say it was one of the proudest moments for me, just seeing this come to life and how many amazing friendships and relationships were created. Yeah, perfect. And I think that's so important, this keeping the conversation open and sharing thoughts and feelings and influence and networks is, is where it, really where it all starts. I think yeah. it's fair to say that, you know, the, the civil rights and social justice issues we recognize uh, now have existed for many decades. Yeah. Do you believe um, there are measures that could be put in place to implement and drive change? I think, I think there can be, and I think um, it's everything from uh, top-down um, efforts from companies around, um, around diversity, efforts around employment, um, diverse employment, uh, you know, apprenticeship programs. I think bottoms up, it's efforts like, you know, the, the building bridges and understanding and storytelling. Um, mm. fashion, in, fashion in general is an incredible cultural uh, industry because it tells stories in a way that affects everybody. And so we have a responsibility. I think in tech, actually, there's a lot that tech can be done. There's, there's, a, there's a huge amount that's been written about whether there are the right people sitting at the table because algorithms just define mm. how much, um, you know, who, who these, these speak to and how they respond, whether it's on social platforms or just simply algorithms around how you navigate sites. Do you have the right people at the table, the right product engineers and engineers? This has been a challenge. Uh, for a long time because there's not that many women um, engineers and product engineers um, and you know even less so women of color and so how do you make sure that you've got people at the table that will be able to influence um, how a lot of this technology is built so I think there's an opportunity um, in in tech to do to do a lot more but it can have a disproportionate impact given how much people consume it and use it in their day-to-day -day lives. Yeah, and it's interesting because there are some organizations now that are stating they won't invest in companies that don't have a diverse board. Do you think that's a necessary step that we should all be taking? I think it's the whole world of impact investing, which is interesting, which is the idea that um, the finance world can actually support change through making the money flow to the right places. 
and, uh, and, and diversity of boards or executive teams is really important. But I think it's, it's important to see one, because it's the right thing to do, so certainly they should invest, but actually it's been shown time and again that diverse boards actually generate higher returns over time. So if you were just to take the economic uh, rationale for why impact businesses or impact finance businesses should invest, it's because they will get higher returns. And I think that's okay. And that's a very, very good reason to do so, which is ultimately why the market a sort of um, you know, managed market is the right way to approach these topics. Yeah, it's a simple enough business case, isn't it, really? Yeah. At, at, its, yeah. at a fundamental level, how can you argue if it's going to improve the bottom line and it's going to improve the, the lives of the people working and the culture of the organisation? How could you not? So on the British Fashion Council, where are they in their DNI kind of journey? So we've, um, we've really um, progressed on that front as well. Um, and we've always had, um, actually going way back till 2006, a positive fashion pillar, which was about um, you know, fashion as a, a force for good, a positive force uh, for good. But, uh, but as I think for everyone, um, the last few years have really accelerated that. And so we've worked again on internal and making sure that our board internally represents uh, the fashion industry and, and who we want to be speaking to, not just our designers, but consumers. Um, we've worked on our own employment um, and, and the team itself, and then really worked on um, everything that we do around our BFC Foundation and, and the grants that we give, the, um, the, the uh, support that we give designers to really make sure that we have a really, really diverse view of the industry. And, and as, it, as it happens, a lot of a young talent come from very, very diverse backgrounds. Um, and so particularly because the UK is, um, defines itself vis-a-vis -vis other fashion capitals as being about emerging talent, this is an incredible opportunity to really highlight the diverse talent that we have. And so I would say there's always more work to do um, but uh, uh, Caroline Rush, the CEO and the team there has done an incredible job and, um, and more to come around, uh, around our efforts around diversity um, and inclusion. And I think you would say from a lot of the winners of our recent um, awards and grants, uh, it, uh, it, it's, a, it's a really diverse representation of, uh, of what the fashion industry is all about. Would either Farfetch or the British Council be willing to sign up to the BBI Business Charter to drive change in a structured way? So Darren told us all about it and it really resonated. It, it really, um, as we talked about earlier, Bianca, it talked about the, uh, the, the business case for, um, for diversity and, uh, and the need to really support with true you know, capital and investment and um, and distribution support. So we're we're absolutely uh, considering it as as one of our uh, as one of our initiatives. And uh, like everything we do, if if we sign up to something, we really commit behind it. Mm -hmm. So we'll have to uh, we'll have to get the team the team's thinking caps on on how we can really uh, support this. Amazing. And to my final question, I ask all of our guests to make a pledge for a better future. What is your pledge? So I think I, I think my pledge is to keep building 
bridges. This is something I can do in my in my role. I can I can take my position in in whatever role I have to um, to raise people's voices, to connect people, whether it's connect an entrepreneur to uh, an investment fund, whether it's to bring um, uh, you know an underrepresented minority. Um, to the attention of some of our buyers, whether it's to, I'm, I'm in a very privileged position that I get called a lot for advice and, and mentorship and, and connections, and I can use those for good. And certainly if I can give someone a leg up in the way that I was helped uh, with a view to really help um, uh, underrepresented minorities and groups that may not have had uh, the support or attention in the past, I will absolutely do that. So maybe in one word, it's uh, you know using using my my own platform to continue to build bridges. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time today. I, I have so many more questions I could ask you, but uh, in the interest of time, I'm going to say thank you so much for joining me today and opening up about your fascinating life and remarkable relationships and, of course, your future aspirations. Um, I know this episode will stay with all of us for a very long time, and I'm hoping that people will take you know, heed of what you said about how they can use their network for good and how they can push for change in their own little way. So thank you so much for joining us today on BBI's You're On Mute. Thank you, Bianca, for having me. And uh, it really felt like a lovely conversation. I really appreciate it. Lovely. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Please join us next time where we'll hear from another icon, business leader or famous personality. Until then, please subscribe, review and leave your feedback wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you're a leader and would like to share your journey and opinion on social justice and a fairer society, please contact us on podcast at blackbusinessinstitute.com. Until next time, goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.